So we don't have to worry about the debt ceiling until after the next presidential inauguration in January 2025. What was all the hullabaloo about, and was it worth it? And while we're talking about money, is it okay to stop worrying about the U.S. banking system now? We will discuss these matters and more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hi, everybody. I'm Graham Walker, coming to you from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. We're right across the bay from San Francisco, and we try to bring you an independent take on the issues of the day, keeping a careful eye on the fate of liberty. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers. Hi, Bill. Hi, Graham. Good to see you. Uh, Bill Evers is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence, and also today joined by our featured expert and colleague, uh, Dr. Ben Powell. So glad to have you with us tonight, Ben, today, Ben. Hey, Graham. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Benjamin Powell is a senior fellow here at the Independent Institute, also director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. Um, he is the author of many scholarly studies and a number of books, uh, several he's a contributor to from the Independent Institute. I think your most recent book is the one on socialism. Is that right? Or is there a new one? Uh, there's been one since. Uh, Wretched oh, Refuse. What's your latest? The, the Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions was the last one. Uh, oh, okay, but, wow. But it wasn't nearly as fun to write as Socialism Sucks was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Socialism Sucks. Two economists drink their way through the unfree world. That was quite a title, Ben. <laughs> it was quite a journey. <laughs> you can find those books on Amazon, I'm sure. And you can also find out more about Ben Powell on our website, independent.org. So... Um, Turning to you uh, first, Ben, you know, apparently we've gotten through the debt ceiling crisis here in America uh, with the legislation uh, apparently being enacted by Congress and being signed by President Biden. Um, you know, the big question a lot of people have is, was this drama real or was it a ritualized pantomime that we have to go through every couple of years? And then, you know, like I have a very specific question, then I'll stop talking, but I really want to know this. Was they say that the U.S. government was, was at risk of default, but, but was it really at risk of default on its incurred loan obligations or financial borrowing obligations? Was it at risk of defaulting on those? Yeah, absolutely not. Listen, default is a choice. It's a policy choice. So I think the framing of the Republicans who supposedly wanted to cut spending during this was horrible. This All this talk about we're going to have a default if we don't make a deal. No, what you were going to do is not be able to increase your debt if you don't make a deal. Now, what the Treasury and the President do at that point is a policy choice. So you need them to choose default. Because here's the reality. Over the last six months, uh, average servicing of the debt interest is about $50 billion a month, a little over $50 billion a month. Even with a little higher rates, bump that up to $60 billion a month if you want. Uh, tax revenue coming in is much higher than that. There's about uh, 341 billion a month of revenue the government takes in of 50 to 60 billion in interest on debt. There's enough revenue coming in without raising your debt ceiling to pay the interest on that. Now, what they don't want to do is cut the spending that would be necessary to use the revenue for servicing the debt. You have entitlement spending that's a little over 225 billion or so per month that it's averaging. Still, you could pay all of Social Security and all of Medicare and the interest and not default on obligations in either of those. The problem is that they spend so damn much. So it's about another almost $300 billion in discretionary spending. That's where you get your almost roughly, what, 200, uh, do math in my head here, roughly $200 billion shortfall per month. So the Biden administration would have had to choose default on Social Security obligations, default on interest, or radically cut spending. Personally, I would rather not make a deal and force them to radically cut spending in the short term and then come back to the table. It's basically just a balanced budget amendment with teeth if you can't raise the debt limit. Sorry, I got on a rant there, Graham. You, 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 you set me up. But you clarified. You clarified. So, but the, I saw a lot of, of these explanations, especially from Democratic leadership, um, who seemed to be talking about obligations of the United States that didn't want to default on obligations. Well, on the one hand, there are literal obligations to, to pay interest on debt instruments incurred by the U.S. Treasury. But then obligations seem to also be used to be being used in a much broader sense, like 
but we, we've, we've enacted programs and we have an obligation to spend all the money on the programs that we've enacted. And we don't want to default on our obligations. So there were two very different meanings of the word obligations of the U.S. government that were being used by those in the discussion. Can you sort that out? Yeah. And tell you what, I'm going to take off my economist hat here for a second and kind of put on my uh, libertarian theorizing hat a little bit. So there's various people that the U.S. government promised to give money to or to spend money on. Some of them, Social Security and Medicare recipients, have had that money forcefully taken from them, whether they want to or not. That includes me. Uh, and now they're receiving some of those benefits in retirement. It would seem, if I was thinking about claims on the government, that they would be more entitled than people who voluntarily gave their money to the government expecting payment. That is debt holders. So people who have uh, financed the activities of the U.S. government by lending it money took on a risk. It would seem, in libertarian hat land world here instead of economist one, that uh, they're less entitled to their payment than the people on entitlements. But certainly the various handouts in the clean energy sector and everywhere else that the U.S. government voluntarily spends money on is probably even less entitled in that type of a framework. Well, that's a pretty interesting answer, Ben, because what you're saying is that if you were going to line up in, you know, in a line of priority the various people who are owed something by the U.S. government, you would put the Social Security recipients ahead of the, ahead in the line before those holding U.S. Uh, debt instruments and wanting their debt service payments. Is that right? Yeah, probably. Uh, although with the caveat, I think we should be abolishing those programs anyway. But it would seem well, yeah. that, you know, if, we th <laughs> if we're thinking about, uh, you know, the equivalent of uh, uh, preferred stockholders, stockholders, debt holders as you go down the chain, the people who have yeah. the money coerced away from them would seem to be in line before the people who voluntarily gave it to the U.S. government. That's a pretty provocative analysis. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about that as I'm, as I'm listening to you say it, Ben. Well, you know, the first let, person let, I heard a version of this from, uh, Bill, is our, our, our old friend Jeff Hummel, uh, who has actually yes. long yes. talked about uh, default on the U.S. government and actually, for that matter, repudiation of debt. And here's another but little twist to it, that argument. The question is, is he in violation of the 14th Amendment? <laughs> We're calling into uh, question I, the, de the debt of the United States. Not to speak of you, Ben. <laughs> well, they they all seem very willing to violate the Constitution all all the time, but I'm not an expert in that, so I'm not not quite so sure. But uh, I, I would think about um, what a repudiation or a default would mean. It would certainly mean the financial chaos that people have talked about. Uh, mm -hmm. But it also seems to be a bit of a disciplinary device that would become more of a balanced budget amendment with teeth. Uh, mm -hmm. Once the U.S. government does that, it'll be a lot harder for them to raise money with perpetual deficit financing again. Uh, so, so maybe the long run outcome wouldn't be so bad. And by the way, if you're one of the uh, right wing American nationalist types, a whole bunch of foreigners own U.S. government debt, too. So if you're not counting their welfare, the hell with them default on it. <laughs> so Rand Paul tried to get a 5% across the board cut. So what he wanted to do was cut uh, $500 billion over two years. He wanted to have a short run debt ceiling increase of a small amount and then confer about how to cut this 5%. And so it would be both caps on total spending and caps on discretionary spending and actually aim at a cut cut rather than just a smaller increase on top of the COVID spending, which is what we've ended up with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this was the, also the kind of thing that the Freedom Caucus in the House wanted, something more stringent, uh, maybe not as tough as and Paul's. But the point is, there are people that have put uh, ser seriously trying to roll back the size of government, but yet still not you know, just shutting it down. Wait, here's something. Well, so, well, yeah, coming uh, back to. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, ahead, Bill, I think that's the outcome that we, some of us were hoping for is something like that right. that re really cuts into it. Uh, and, but, and, the, and the question, of course, is. 
is there ever as much leverage as during this? Because there are not that many must-pass things that you can uh, put a, a cut attached to. Sure. But I think the thing that we're bumping up against is the reality is just both major parties, the leadership and the, the mainstream of them, neither one of them want to cut spending even at that level. You've got right. the freedom caucus who would like to, but there's enough. I mean, you saw it in the vote in the House, right? A whole bunch of Democrats joined the big government Republicans to, to, to make right. the deal. I think that's right. the sad reality. I will say I, just there's re- a, I will say there's something to the case that the you know the Republicans and the conservatives and the libertarians all had areas where they'd like to see m- movement of some sort like the IRS agents like uh, student debt stuff all all sort of things something incremental did happen in the course of this it's just far away from what really needs to be done. So, actually, in the spirit of independent institute stuff, it's kind of a classic. What we've seen here is a, a, a crisis in Leviathan type movement, right? We exactly. have the COVID crisis that just, or that the government used to justify massive increases in spending. And now you say, oh, no, 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 debt ceiling. Let's pull it back. And what do you do? You just smidge it back a little teeny bit after you right. moved up like this. A tiny but, bit. But the Freedom <laughs> Caucus it on the screen. wanted... The, <laughs> the Freedom Caucus wanted to fight the ratchet and uh, McCarthy and uh, President Biden and McConnell and so forth were not willing to go to the mat to fight the ratchet. Yeah, it reminds me of a song, I Fought the Ratchet and the Ratchet Won. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the ratchet tends to win. Hey, but I want to go back to what you said a few minutes ago, more toward the beginning of this last round of our conversation. So. Uh, ben, if uh, Congress had not raised the amount, the ceiling uh, uh, for debt to incur new debt, if they if they had decided, if they just hadn't done it, and so the previously enacted limitation on debt remained in place, um, what would have happened, according to your analysis? I mean, you can't know for sure, but what would have happened would have been you admit some chaos in markets, and then there would have had to have been hard choices made by the president in his, in his capacity as chief executive officer, which obligations to fulfill and, in what order. And by Congress in its appropriations from now on. In other words, they have this amount that is being said, okay, it's it's this amount that's now extended for. Actually, it's not for any amount. It's for right. a no, time period. It's, it's a duration, the yeah. expectation mm-hmm. is that it will be for that amount. So likewise, right. as Ben was pointing out, it, it, people have to make decisions <clears throat> about going forward at any point. So if that had happened, Ben, and here's where I'm going with that, the president would have had to make these hard choices, maybe Congress too, um, where to, you know, what, what funds to expend uh, and, and to whom and what, what obligations, whether they're political obligations or moral obligations or literal you know, debt obligations, which obligations are fulfilled with available resources. But President Biden said uh, a couple weeks ago that he had another way that he would have dealt with that had there not been an increase in the debt ceiling. And the other way, which he eventually forswore, but he said it was valid, was he could invoke the 14th Amendment, which says that Section 4 of which says the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned. And so... Um, he said that because of that, he, if he was faced with a situation that we just hypothesized a moment ago, he would have continued borrowing money, um, incurring new debt obligations in order to fulfill the obligations of the United States. Uh, and he would not have been limited because other, but to, because to limit him would have to, been to call into question the public debt of the United States. What do you think of that fourth, 14th Amendment argument that the president was making? Yeah, I think it's hogwash. Uh, that's a technical legal term, Graham. Uh, that's that's but, what uh, I that's thought. Po- yeah, that's but, policy jargon. Yeah. So let's just like, <laughs> the reality that I s- described in the math doesn't have to violate the Fourteenth Amendment. You've got about three hundred and fifty mil uh, billion dollars a month in revenue coming in, <laughs> and a little bit more than a fifty, maybe sixty billion dollar interest or- or obligation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's saying the only way to service that debt 
and uphold the 14th Amendment is to borrow. Well, that's bullshit. He's yeah, got more money coming jet. in right now to do it. Right. I, I'm sure a lawyer will torture that and make it something else. But in plain English, it seems to me that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply. He'd be making a policy choice to allocate spending to his favorite projects rather than the debt. Yeah, but he sure he tried to make a, a, a persuasive case, and some of his supporters were making the case for him. They were making the argument along the lines of, well, you know, the United States has all sorts of obligations, and these obligations are the public debt of the United States, and these obligations cannot be called into question. Therefore, we have to spend all the money on everything, both debt service and everything else, because otherwise we're questioning the public obligations of the United States, uh, which was a very broad interpretation of the term public debt. Unless uh, basically about $300 billion of defense and discretionary spending is an obligation equal on power of the debt, mm-hmm. every penny of that, then you've right. got money in there to service the debt. Right. But precisely that was the kind of argument that was being made a few weeks ago. They were trying to put everything in this category of public debt and therefore the president could do whatever he wanted. It was it was a disturbing, constitutionally disturbing a uh, trial balloon. I hope that's all it was. It was a trial balloon. I, w- I want to just throw in the fact that Lindsey Graham was very discontented in the Senate at the thought that the military <laughs> spending was not going to be at his level of preference. And anyway, uh, I, I will also commend the, the Freedom Caucus. Many of its members were willing to question military spending. So I and obviously mm-hmm. Rand Paul as well, and Lee and Mike Lee. So, you know, it's interesting that debates about things that sometimes have not been debated do come up in the light, shadow of this debt ceiling situation. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to add one other thing, and that has to do with uh, student loans, the college financial aid program. So they've they've started that up again. In terms of the, the, the recipients have to start paying things back, they were under suspension during the lockdown. Mm-hmm. So that that is part of this uh, bill. And in, in addition, the Supreme Court is likely to throw out the claim that this was a that the student debt suspension was a medical emergency thing. So that will happen. But the problem, as Adam Kissel former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education, as pointed out, is a, and, and as well, uh, Richard Vetter uh, of Independent Institute and a number of other people, is that they have a new loan forgiveness program that's just like some kind of vast abyss that they're going to forgive so much of this, the debt that the, the problem of, of this as just a banking matter, or however you want to look at it, is not going to be stemmed by just having the kids have to pay, pay supposedly pay back, because they have easy forgiveness plans that are are going to uh, mm-hmm. make it a mockery of a of, of calling it a loan program. So the the, the deal between uh, Kevin McCarthy and President Biden, how does it bear on the question of canceling all those? Student loan balance. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. They're not. There's no. So there's there's multiple things going on. One is they suspended repayment. Okay, that's that suspension is ending. That's actually part of this deal. Then there's the president's plan to forgive stuff. That's before the Supreme Court, and that will probably the Supreme Court will probably say he couldn't do that. It's too big of a political question for uh, some kind of executive action on a supposed health emergency. So they're going to say, you, you, you know, they, they have a serious question doctrine, and if something is a huge thing and it amounts to an appropriation, the president can't just do it unilaterally. Congress has to do it. And then the last thing is this repayment plan that the the education department has put in and that it has gone through the rulemaking process and so forth. And that's just an open-ended giveaway. And uh, it's, it's going to cost 
We don't know. Hundreds of billions of dollars. We just don't really know because it's it's a magnet. It's a <laughs> for, for people to to uh, apply for. So so Ben, I, you you don't masquerade as a you know legal expert necessarily, but do you think Bill is right that the Supreme Court's going to knock that student loan forgiveness thing down? Yeah, I sure hope so. And then uh, it'll probably knock down people majoring in uh, worthless degrees too. And simply Very delaying largely. adulthood. Uh, I, 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 well, won't, I won't name the ones I think are worthless. The listeners and say, viewers are you can give us a list, or what? they could pick for themselves. But I'll yes. just say it's not economics. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. He exactly. has to be careful. It might be something that's offered at his university. Oh, right, right. He has to be careful. Well, so, but what if there's a five-vote sort of overlapping consensus around, you know, something the kind of kind of thing that uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, seems to like to forge, whereby they say something like, probably this was overstepped the bounds, but given the expectations that were legitimately created, we can't nullify it this time around, but you, you can't proceed in the future. Is that a possible political compromise on the Supreme Court? It's hard to imagine anybody but Roberts going for that, but I've always argued academically that you're not entitled to your expectations, but that's my view. It's not a lawyer's view. <laughs> okay, it's a political a, theorist another, view. Here's another question. So apparently Americans for Tax Reform has called uh, the IRS component of this debt ceiling agreement a political win for Republicans because it, it reduces the amount of extra expenditure for IRS agents. Is that is that a fair summary, do you think? no. It's what was it eighty billion that they gave for new IRS agents, and they pulled back twenty billion of it, something like that. In this, is that about the right number? Oh, man. It's something yeah. in that ballpark. It's it's still a ridiculous increase in, in that organization that's clearly a politically motivated organization and does witch hunts. Hopefully, none of them are watching this interview right now. <laughs> they probably they probably have some special search engine that not only searches for you but searches for them. <laughs> Well, if they're uh, talking to the FBI, they probably already got it through our phones. <laughs> anyway, the argument is not so much that this any of the spending is good or any of this adding of the extra agents is good, that Americans for Tax Reform is pretty good on these issues. Their argument is it gets rid of the expansion this year, mm -hmm. okay? And so the idea is, okay, we could tackle the other expansion in farther out years, but at least we've stopped it for this year. I'm, I'm pretty certain that that is the Grover Norquist argument. Well, so apparently uh, the House GOP leadership, including Kevin McCarthy, are selling this as a restoration of fiscal sanity. Uh, and they're making an argument against uh, critics on the right, supposedly. But let's talk about fiscal sanity more generally. Um, this whole drama played out against the background, uh, Ben, of what seemed to be a pretty strongly looming crisis in the integrity of the banking system. Um, is it fair to say that all of our worries about the banking system are over now? Well, no. I mean, my longer term worries about the banking system are worse, but not because of the bank's balance sheets, but because the U.S. government has illustrated that everybody is too big to fail. And that makes future right. crises much more likely. Uh, in my view, there was no reason to bail out uh, for the federal government to, to bail out the, the banks that were having problems in, in California. Yeah, so SVP uh, and then uh, First Republic. It seems like the big beneficiary was S uh, signature, Also Signature Bank. Oh, and Signature. That's right. That's right. So you're saying that unless banks are capable of failing, then there's going to be a kind of incentive in place that will undermine the whole banking system. Is that what you're saying, Ben? Explain that if so. Yeah, this is the classic uh, economist moral hazard situation, right? You when, Once you demonstrate that if you take, if you make the game, heads I win, tails taxpayers lose, I'm going to aggressively flip the hell out of that coin again and again. Uh, and that's essentially what the government does when they illustrate smaller regional banks, um, things that aren't totally systemic, although I'm really against bailouts on those too. Uh, but uh, they illustrate that they'll bail out more people, then they've got more incentive to take the risks that make future bailouts more likely. Um, and so it's not uh, my short 
run fears about the banking system aren't greatly changed right now. It's more just like the 2008 financial crisis and the actions the government took bailing people out then made future bailouts more likely or future needs for bailouts mm -hmm. more likely. I think we have another illustration of that here. So and, you're and, a senior... And this wasn't bailing out your average depositor either, especially with oh, right. Silicon Valley Bank, right? What this is, is big left-wing Democratic donors who have deposits in there well <laughs> in excess of the $250,000 insured level, who all of a sudden realize the bank's got a lousy business plan in an environment with interest rates going up. They all start pulling their money. But because they're big politically connected leftist donors, well, then the government's going to decide to bail them out. This was politics as usual, not Wow. Not systematic banking analysis of we must bail this bank out because it'll ruin the country otherwise. So, so I, your point is that particular instance was politics as usual, but there's a, a long-term systemic effect, which is to say changing the incentives. So if I get this right, so I'm a, I'm a senior bank executive loan officer, whatever, and I'm considering you know a variety of possible lending options that I might undertake. And now that I realize that even if uh, some of them go belly up, the U.S. Treasury is going to going to back me up. I'm going to choose slightly riskier portfolio of lending than I would otherwise have done. Yeah, and by Which the way, that's exactly what Silicon Valley Bank had done, right? So one of the mm. things that they were doing, it, so bank, so the banks are borrowing short term from their depositors, and they're making longer term investments that have fixed rates that pay them back usually. And mm -hmm. this mismatch of the duration and the interest rates, when interest rates, they made their, their investments when interest rates were low, interest rates yeah. go up, their assets become less valuable, right? But one of the things they were doing to show bigger profits was taking longer and longer duration assets because they could get a little higher interest rate premium for that. But those are the ones that are even more sensitive when interest right. rates go up. So they right. depreciate even more. So they were incentivized to take the bad risk and probably <laughs> the executives there actually knew something about politics as usual and figured they could get a bailout. Okay, so I want to ask a little bit about the Federal Reserve here. Are we not perhaps letting them a bit off the hook in that they were indicating that uh, these low interest rates were going to be of long duration? And were they not saying that inflation was transitory and would be over pretty soon? And that that contributed to the uh, missteps of the banking executive. Sure, but Bill, while we're passing the blame around, let's dial it back a bit further to sure. both the Biden and the Trump administration's fiscal spending. Now, Absolutely. fiscal spending does not cause inflation. Monetization via the Federal Reserve of fiscal spending causes inflation. And that's exactly what we had happen. The government greatly increased its spending during COVID, and the Federal Reserve accommodated it by accommodating it, put more money into circulation, and we got the high inflation. So yes, the, the Fed was the uh, immediately guilty of, of turning this into a bad business plan, but it was underneath in the both administration spending, really, as well. So in addition to well, monetization, in addition to monetization of the public debt, uh, what, what about just a larger question about deposit insurance and about fractional reserve banking? I wonder if you our listeners might like to hear, uh, I know this is a gigantic <laughs> question, but if you could say a few words about your thinking on these two subjects. Yeah, so I think, uh, so in this particular crisis, deposit insurance wasn't the big factor because most of the depositors were way, way in excess of that. Uh, deposit insurance is supposedly there for your average Joe who doesn't know how to evaluate a bank's risk. That wasn't the people who were investing here. Um, I mean, I'm generally opposed to government-provided deposit insurance. If you want to buy a deposit insurance policy like you buy your auto insurance policy, maybe that's a good idea. I'd rather see a market provided. But the fractional reserve banking thing, I mean, this is a huge uh, discussion over many, many, many years in our, our circles. And I'm a consumer right. of that literature, not a producer. But it right. seems to me that in every time that the market has been more free to decide, it's fractional reserve banking rather than warehouse banking that that wins out in the marketplace, um, which does have uh, some risks with it, but it seems like that's what the market has chosen uh, in the past. I'm a big fan of Thank Larry you. White and, and George Selge's work. Thank you. That's that kind of comment I was looking for our, our listeners to hear. Thank you. 
Uh, but but back to the the question of monet, monetization of fiscal spending by the federal government. Um, am I right to see that there's several vicious feedback loops in here? I mean, we talked about the moral hazard of too big to fail and why that induces banks to take riskier positions, which then makes them more vulnerable, makes them need bailouts more. But once the bailouts occur, and maybe they keep occurring more frequently because of that incentive, um, once the bailouts occur, that too pushes federal expenditure, which then pushes, you got, you've got to deal somehow with the expenditure. So bailing out the banks at massive uh, numbers of dollars f pushes to the expansion of the money supply, does it not? which then pushes inflation, which then pushes the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates to quell inflation. Um, am I seeing too many vicious feedback loops there, or am I onto something? I think your description's fairly reasonable of some of what just went on these last three years. Well, that's worrisome. How do we stop it? <laughs> well, in the scope of the spending that we're, we're talking about here, having started this episode with the, the debt ceiling stuff and the the massive amount of spending of what is it five over five hundred billion dollars a month the government averages in expenditures, the amount of money spent on these banking bailouts is relatively trivial in that in terms of pushing that vicious circle farther. Well, I would that's rather a comfort. <laughs> I, I would rather think of the it was a vicious circle that got you to those banking failures. Yeah, um, there you go. From the for the much bigger big trillions of dollars spending packages that got monetized, right. then got inflation out of control, then the Fed had right. to rein inflation in, and you then that turned it into rates. a bad business model. Right. Why did no one foresee that all that spending would push inflation up, which would push interest rates up, which would then undermine uh, the holdings of those banks? Why did no one foresee that? Even Keynesians like Larry Summers were not <laughs> happy at the prospect. I would say you you had better be better than evaluating Summers' comments, but at least he raised a red flag about. Hey, you know what? I can tell you one happy thing that's come out of this, uh, Graham, is that uh, I don't know the last time I heard anybody say the words modern modern monetary theory. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're right. <laughs> Once inflation actually came up, everybody stopped talking about that. While inflation was low, they liked to act like this was a real thing instead of just some thing some quacks in UMass Amherst do. Yeah, sometimes very good you, point. Very good point. You bump into reality and it hits you in the chin, and maybe that's the case with that one. Let's hope. <laughs> um, shall we change the subject? Um, something else that's um, very much in the news. Uh, another angle on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, aside from what we were talking about before about the question of what the court will do with the student loans, is the question of uh, all the alleged gifts that Clarence Thomas has received, and some people are calling. For Clarence Thomas to resign because he took gifts from a Texas billionaire, I think it is. Um, uh, you guys have any insight on that? I, I, it seems like a tempest in a teapot, but some people are taking it pretty darn seriously. I think this is just a political witch hunt for Clarence Thomas. Uh, they found an issue they think they can use to try to marginalize him, or you know, at their greatest victory would be get him off the court and let Biden replace him. But the reality is. Uh, this particular Texas person uh, has been friends with Clarence Thomas for many years. He was also friends with the, the late, great Walter Williams, the economist at George Mason, for many, many years. Ah. And the type of things I see being reported about Harlan Crow, I knew for years with Walter Williams. These people were just, they're a similar age and are friends together. And one of them's a billionaire, and we, you'll pick him up in your jet and take him to supper and things like that. But the stuff I've seen described about Clarence Thomas isn't much different than his friend Walter Williams. Uh, interactions as far as I could tell. Uh, and that's clearly someone who did not have any political power in lobbying. Rather, he was right. a great intellectual. And I think we have some kindred spirits there who have been friends for a long time. And, and that's about it. I think also, you know, you have to remember that uh, Crow had no litigation before the court. Uh, he was even, I would say, more of a moderate Republican business Republican than he was uh, Clarence Thomas is, I guess we could say, a natural raw, natural rights conservative or something like that. I don't, you know, but he's a, he's a, he's a originalist, but he, he treats it in terms of natural law. Uh, and also there are liberal members of the Supreme Court that have had all sorts of financial uh 
<laughs> deals for themselves, but nobody seems to want to mention. So I, I don't know. You know, it looks as if Chief Justice Roberts may write up some kind of voluntary plan or something like that. Get the people to disclose a little more than they have been, but that doesn't I, sound like a bad thing necessarily. Right. I I do think that the whole idea of a black conservative or a black libertarian just is something that progressives cannot mentally process. And so it has to be something diabolical that's going on. I can't believe that such a person could be sincerely believing these things. It has to be a payoff. I feel sorry for the man because it, I feel sorry for the man because, you know, it, it, it invokes the memory of what was done to him at the point of his original nomination. Right. Um, they were gunning for him, and they were looking for everything they could find, and uh, you know, the all, almost ups, upset the apple cart. But I think he was pretty, pretty uh, bruised. At least I would be back then at that time by the whole so-called Anita Hill stuff. And this has got to have some unhappy memories for him. Right. And, of course, they've gone after him also for his wife's political activities. These Many mm-hmm. of these people that are doing this are feminists who would otherwise say, of course, wives should have completely independent lives from their husbands unless they're a, a black conservative Supreme Court justice, in which case it doesn't apply. Uh, while we're talking about legal stuff, let's talk about the FBI. Uh, I noticed this... Uh, headline in the New York Post about a week ago saying that the FBI just got caught in yet more massive, outrageous FISA abuses. I thought the FISA abuses was a story from some years back, but is this really something new? What do you think, Bill? Uh, Yes, it is, in the sense that, of course, we have the Durham report that confirms that the FBI plays fast and loose with what it presents to the FISA court. and Durham called them on this. They did not follow their own supposed procedures. They submitted things that they should have known were false if they did not, in fact, know were false. But this is a new thing. So there's a thing called Section 702, and it allows the FBI to gather. Or you know, It's a collection thing. So if you have electronic traffic, emails particular we're talking about here and it pertains to foreign agents or an intelligence gathering evidence of a crime and the FBI can be finding and retaining this and using it as evidence the problem is they routinely just overstep and, and, and it's not like a small number it's not like 10 okay it's like 278,000 what wrong improper excuse me Bill I believe their term was only (laughs) 278,000 yeah okay that's very funny but the point is it's a massive overleaping of boundaries of the law and this is this is for uh, uh, 2021 and 2022 you know, we're not talking rule of law here. We're talking about routine criminal activities by federal agency. How can that be, and what will be done about it, do you think, Bill? I don't see a lot of people being fired in these various FBI. No. Some people retire, obviously, but uh, I don't see— I mean, there's, there's surely some constitutional cases lurking here because we're talking about warrantless searches, Right. And this implicates the Fourth Amendment. Uh, surely, these, there this are reporting people has standing. not real. Yes, there must be people who have been directly victimized. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if you look at the Durham report and you look at the not very successful legal cases that came from that, and you look at the fact <laughs> that seemingly high level decision makers in the FBI did things that against the law and no one has prosecuted them 
I realize that the prosecutors have to say, okay, I got to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt and intent and various things that are difficult. And with this section 702, we're not really getting much in the way of name, like so-and-so pushed for this. It seems like they're just doing it all over the place. It might so, deplete the FBI if they fired them all. So the, there's the abuses under this, but it seems, and I'm obviously not an expert in this area, but by casual following of it, it seems like the actually following policy would still seem to be a violation of Fourth Amendment. Because I, I gather the policy allows you to uh, intercept cell phone calls, emails. It's, war it's warrantless. That's war right. Warrantless with foreign people. So the for Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to foreigners doing things ah, on U.S. So that's soil. That's the trick. But that's the trick. if they're doing it with a U.S. citizen, this rule allowed them to do that. So then you're violating the Fourth Amendment rights of a U.S. citizen because they're talking to a foreign. That, again, not a legal scholar, but that seems so, to me like the existing rule whoa, even violated the Fourth. It's certainly troubling. Absolutely. Wow. So that your your Fourth Amendment privacy rights are secure unless you're talking to a foreigner? Yes. Whoa. <laughs> Something's wrong there. But by the way, can you guys show me your passports? <laughs> I can show you my vaccine card, too, if you need it. <laughs> you need to burn that like a draft card. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, I mean, I, we're drawing a little attention to it here. I, let's just hope that uh, further attention can be paid to this one. Let, I mean, this let is... me say a little something that's a cautionary note when I was so confidently saying the Supreme Court's going to overthrow the president's student loan forgiveness program. Oh, okay, yeah. So... There's a controversy. Um, so the settled view is that there has to be a material interest of the litigator who's challenging something mm -hmm. based on the idea that it's unconstitutional. The problem is when the federal government is giving you something, okay, it's hard to see a damage to you from getting stuff. Okay? So they have to search around and find but, uh, state programs that are somehow mm -hmm. hey. uh, superseded or... Uh, like the Mojila program in Missouri. Yeah. So they have to find some rather convoluted thing. I, I would also say, though, there's a famous legal scholar from the time of the Nixon impeachment named Raoul Burke, and he wrote an essay in the Yale Law Journal many decades ago saying, actually, this is wrong. If you look back over the history of constitutional jurisprudence, including the English precedents, you don't have to have some kind of important material thing at stake. You can just be a citizen whose rights are being violated. But the courts have not taken that direction. I just know any lawyers that are loving and fascinating aspects of this should look up that art. Uh, let's come in for a landing in a minute here with a couple sort of more, uh, I don't know if these are lighthearted, but uh, somewhat different angles. Uh, what do you think about the NAACP issuing a travel advisory for the state of Florida? <laughs> that is travel advisors are what the U.S. Department of State issues when there's like a civil war going on in a foreign country or chaos is breaking out somewhere and it's dangerous to travel there. So the NAACP says the state of Florida deserves and is getting their travel advisory. What's up with that, Ben? If, if, the, uh, if the U.S. government took the State Department's classifications for travel advisories in other countries and applied it to inner cities in the United States, there'd be plenty of liberal cities that would be very unadvisable to travel to right now. But the mm -hmm. idea of this about the entire state of Florida is obviously crazy. Uh, someone should go around with a microphone and, uh, and interview uh, people in Florida and ask them, do you feel unsafe here? How come you haven't fled? <laughs> right, how, exactly. How come the leadership of the, the national leadership of the NAACP lives in Florida? It, how here's come one for, the other so, ones take their vacations in Florida? So over the last three years, Florida is the biggest net in-migration state that there is. Seems pretty weird for a travel advisory. And, and I bet you if you look by numbers, no, no, by I, so I, don't know, I don't know this, I'm speculating now, but I bet it, you if you looked at interstate migration by race, Florida would still be the number one destination for black Americans. 
Mm-hmm. I believe the data is available and that your speculation is quite sound. Also, it's the largest state in the country for business startups by African Americans. So, you know, oh, as you were saying, it's not Baltimore, it's not Chicago, <laughs> it's not Oakland, it's Florida. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, they should have a, a travel advisory for minority students in the city of Chicago instead leave. Yeah, that's probably True. more uh, evidence-based advisory. Well, let's turn to Be- you finally, Bill. Go ahead. I, I was going to just say, I, we were talking about schools and school children. There's a fascinating thing going on with the best public high school in the United States, which is Thomas Jefferson High School in suburban Virginia in Arlington, Virginia. So they, during the COVID lockdowns, the, so it's an exam school. In other words, it's a, enter, it's not a normal school where you just live in the zone and, that, and you go to it. It's, it's an exam school or it requires some kind of admissions process to be selected. So they suspended the exams during the COVID lockdown. I guess that makes sense. But now they want to permanently not use exams. They want to limit the number of kids that can come from certain high school, from certain middle schools, go into it. And they want to have an offer admission to the top, let's say, 1.5% of kids in each middle school. So the, res- the reason for this, admitted by the people, that are making the decisions is they don't like the number of Asians that they have. They have too many Asians as far as the school board and the admissions officers are concerned, and they don't, they don't have enough uh, black. So the interesting legal question that's been back and forth in the courts is, here's something that's neutral on its face. In other words, even though they have what we might call racist intent, they have just this percentage figure from these middle schools and caps and so forth. Uh, but it's not saying no Asians can apply or no, or, or all blacks can come or something like that. So the court, the, the court, which is currently deciding college admissions where there are perhaps informal racial quotas at places like University of North Carolina or Harvard or Stanford or whatever, it's not that. They're, they are doing this with racial preference intent, but by percentages. And so, so this is going to be interesting to see. It's, it's gotten to an appeals level, and it's probably going to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. I thought that in cases of institutional, institutionally racist policies, you had to somehow prove intent. And in this case, intent is clear, but you're saying that because the means or mechanism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of constitutional jurisprudence on the part of the federal courts that if something is neutral on its face, you should let Mm -hmm. it go. Um, Mm -hmm. We're just going to have to see. It's going to be litigated and it's going to be. So the first court that heard this, said, yes, this is illegal, you can't do this, you're trying to keep Asians out. And the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the school district appealed it to one additional level, and they said, no, no, it's fine, you didn't, you didn't use the words black or Asians in your plan, <laughs> and so it's okay. <laughs> and it's going to continue to be litigated. So this is something that, you know, it, it's fascinating to watch as a matter of news, but it's also on the level of principle. It, it certainly intrigues me. Um, I'm, I'm torn. Obviously, the racist intent is troubling. But on the other hand, it, it does worry me when the law or the power of the state is brought to bear on the basis of um, some sense of what people privately believe or are motivated by. In some ways, I don't know if the law should really have anything to do with analyzing our motivations. It should just look at like what we do, right? So in this case, that, that pushes me to 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 the uh, the wrong side of the case. Well, uh, what do you, some, th- what some do you think would, about some, the principle here? Well, some people would say that they declare they're doing this in order to keep Asians out and bring blacks in. Mm-hmm. So that might 
It's complicated. I mean, ob obviously a full classical liberal society would not have this problem because we wouldn't have this. Uh, we, we just wouldn't have the same kind of public school system if we had a public school system at all. And we would, we just wouldn't have racial quotas that were enforced by government and so forth. So, But, sh but should, should the law, the penalties of law actually be uh, imposed on the basis of a judgment about motivations in other as words, opposed like, to actions. So you're talking about, for example, enhanced penalties in criminal justice for yes, supposed hate hate crime. Yeah, I mean, how does the state I, know, I how does hear, the law know I what hear, the motive is? Well, in this case, they declared it. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Feel free I, to weigh I, in, I, but I, to close here, but I don't want to leave you out. <laughs> no, I no, also you guys share, your, on this I one. share. I share. I share <laughs> your concern, Graham. I'm not. I don't want to say I'm against what you're saying. I'm just. Well, listen. We have covered some interesting territory. Thank you very much, gentlemen, both. Uh, for joining us. Thank you for taking some time out. Uh, ben Powell, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute with your economic uh, acuity and wisdom. Um, if we have a chance, we're going to make sure we put you in charge of U.S. fiscal policy in the future. Let me just add, let me just add <laughs> that if you want to read uh, Hamaway's argument, you can find it in the New Individualist Review, which is a graduate student magazine, long, long defunct, it was reprinted by Liberty Fund, the mm. whole bound volume. And you can find uh, Hamway's argument about that there. Thank you to Bill Evers. Thank you to Benjamin Powell. Thank you to all of our friends who've joined us. Remember, um, we are storing up lots of good things on our website for everybody to consult, to give you a deeper dive on the issues and principles that are at stake in the policy decisions of our era, you can go to our website, independent.org, and load up on the latest wisdom. Some of it will be from Ben Powell, some from Bill Evers, and many others. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you, Graham. And thank you, thank Bill you. Evers. Thank you, Graham. Come back next time for Independent Outlook. Take care. <laughs>